0: Oh, and Welcome back to It's Not Magic, a podcast from 6th Street about business building that strips away the pretense and gets right to the useful stuff. We use this show to talk to founders and industry leaders and get them to explain in plain English what they set out to do and specifically how they do it. I'm your host, David Steepleman. I've been excited about every episode, but today it's especially true because we're talking with Janice Chen. She's a brilliant scientist and entrepreneur, the co-founder and chief technology officer at Mammoth Biosciences. Janice and the team at Mammoth are developing next generation diagnostics and therapeutics around the CRISPR gene editing technology.
1: That's one thing actually going back to the culture of Jennifer's lab is cultivating this idea and and this culture of collaboration, frankly, where I think in a lot of other PhD experiences, yeah, you might be completely siloed and really kind of heads down and working on a problem. But I think Jennifer's lab in particular really, I think, challenged that idea that your science was really just like in your own world.
0: Janice is, of course, referring to Jennifer Doudna, the Nobel Prize winner and co-discoverer of CRISPR, who is also Sixth Street's chief science advisor. If you've been anywhere near a bookstore, you've heard of Codebreaker, Walter Isaacson's kind of biography of Jennifer Doudna, and really the whole history and future of gene editing and the CRISPR revolution that's really going to have profound implications for humanity. And Janice Chen and her co-founders at Mammoth are one of the prime examples in the book of how collaborative science can take this discovery into our daily lives. So it's pretty exciting. But the other reason I'm so excited about today's conversation is that I was with one of my partners, Jeff Pudalol, who with our partner, Vijay Mohan, runs Sixth Street's healthcare investing business. And he's here now. Hi, Jeff. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's such a pleasure. So in keeping with the theme of It's Not Magic, our conversation with Janice Chen is about how she and her collaborators took an insight and built it into a business. But Jeff, put your biochemistry hat on for a second and frame what CRISPR is and how Mammoth is taking that discovery into our daily lives. Yeah.
2: So the easiest way to understand CRISPR is to start with your genes. Every living thing on Earth has DNA and everything has genes, which are segments of DNA, And those genes include a lot of information, including the information for a lot of what makes us us, from the color of your hair to your predisposition for certain diseases. What if there was a tool that could allow us to easily and accurately edit genes in a way that could help life on Earth? And what if that tool occurred organically in nature, just waiting to be found? That's what CRISPR is. In 2020, Jennifer Doudna and her collaborator, Emmanuel Charpentier, won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of CRISPR and how it can be used to edit genes, which dates back to their work in 2012, so 10 years ago now. A decade in, CRISPR is evolving from a highly valuable lab tool to having real-world implications. CRISPR is being developed to help treat genetic diseases, diagnose infection, and even improve the nutrient profile of tomatoes. Jadis is one of the co-founders of one such CRISPR company, Mammoth Biosciences, where she is CTO, alongside co-founders Trevor Martin, CEO, and Lucas Harrington, CSO. As we will hear, this company is doing some of the coolest things with CRISPR across therapeutics, diagnostics, and other CRISPR tools. One of the amazing things, which is what Janice focuses on and we will get into today, is using CRISPR as a fast and effective way to detect diseases. Mammoth actually developed the first CRISPR-based test to detect COVID-19. What's amazing is that this is all in the last four years or so. In any case, what's our connection? We're an investor at Mammoth, full disclosure. Sixth Street Funds invested in their Series D, and as you mentioned, Jennifer Doudna is our chief scientific advisor and is a co-founder of Mammoth. Janice worked in Jennifer's lab at Berkeley, the famous Doudna lab, before starting Mammoth.
0: Okay, awesome. That's helpful, and we'll add some useful and not super technical reading on CRISPR on the website. Let's get into it. Janice Chen, thank you for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you.
1: Thanks for having me, David.
0: You're in the lab at Berkeley with Jennifer Doudna. CRISPR is out there. It's a thing. And everyone's talking about interrupting the expression of diseases or developing resistant crops or making an incredibly juicy tomato or whatever it is that people are talking about. And you're thinking about the engineering of it and diagnosis. Can you walk us through that where you and your colleagues actually kind of happened on that moment?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had started in the lab of Jennifer Doudna. You know, this was still early days of CRISPR and frankly a lot of the conversation was purely just how do you use CRISPR for gene editing? Jennifer and colleagues had done some of the foundational work in showing this was an extraordinary gene editing tool but that was sort of where the conversation ended. What we had done that I think was really exciting and was really focusing on the fundamental mechanisms of how these enzymes worked and what that had led to was this unexpected finding that you could use CRISPR not just to edit genes but also detect DNA. So that was actually completely against dogma at the time. I think no one had really thought about, oh, you could actually use this tool for detection. But that actually just came through the process of really understanding the mechanisms behind how the protein worked and sort of stumbled across this feature that continued to reproduce itself in the lab. Once we had figured out that this was not just a fluke, this was actually a robust activity that we were observing in the protein we said, okay, well we have to then understand if we can actually leverage this as a potential diagnostic tool. And that's where, um, with the help of Jennifer and my colleagues, Lucas and, and others in the lab, we said, why don't we go and reach out to physicians in the Bay Area and ask if they were really, you know, ready to collaborate On um, using CRISPR as a potential diagnostic and had focused on looking at HPV as a proof of concept because it was a double stranded DNA virus, and we had shown that you could use CRISPR to detect double stranded DNA. So we had the the fortunate opportunity to work with one of the leading HPV researchers at UCSF, Dr. Joel Pilewski, and were able to basically create a diagnostic assay to detect specific HPV strains in patient samples. And that was for me a major aha moment because we were given essentially a of blinded clinical samples that we had no idea what they were infected with, and then basically used our CRISPR diagnostic, which essentially accurately detected the specific HPV strains. And so I think that was a really exciting moment for me and, and one that actually allowed us to, to think really big about how we could then t- take this technology beyond the academic lab and, and make a big impact with it.
0: I'd love to unpack some of that. I've heard you talk about, and I've, we've heard Jennifer Downa talk about creating an environment of curiosity-driven science in the lab, and I assume that's sort of why you were kind of picking your head up and scanning the kind of universe of possible applications of this, but what is that environment? How do you create that environment?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it, like you said, is driven by Jennifer's philosophy and her approach to science and how she's sort of been able to cultivate a culture where it's not about solving the easy problem. It's about looking at what's really difficult and actually challenging ourselves in terms of how we think about the current status of the way things work. So being comfortable with challenging dogma, and that's one thing I'm really proud of for myself and, and for my colleagues that were in Jennifer's lab. For instance, we talked about CRISPR diagnostics as one example where we we challenged the, the belief that CRISPR was just a Gene editing tool. Later on, in in, uh, in graduate school with my my co-founder Lucas, you know, we challenged this idea that CRISPR enzymes had to be a certain size to be able to work for gene editing, and and through that unexpected direction, we, we learned that you could actually use these ultra small enzymes that people thought, oh, there's no way these are going to work for gene editing. But in fact, they were extremely robust and, and in fact unlocked so many applications uh, for therapeutics. So those are examples, I think, where going after the hard problems and being able to really focus on um, not just going after what's expected, but really going after the non-obvious is something that, that Jennifer really cultivated. And I think all of us in the lab really challenged each other to, to go after that.
2: How much of that culture have you brought with you to Mammoth? And uh, now that you're a leader, Janice, how do you make that culture stick?
1: I think a tremendous amount of that is what we really value and bring to Mammoth. I mean, for us, you know, it's all about Driving the science forward and, and being at the forefront of that technology. I mean, certainly being in the CRISPR field—one that is so incredibly competitive and so exciting—and it's always about what's new, what's next—is um, something that we've we've brought very very much to Mammoth. I think you know throughout our graduate school years, it, it, we were actually kind of building the evidence and. And the thesis for, for this idea that you could actually be, you know, scientifically driven and use a scientific curiosity to help kind of drive the next generation of groundbreaking tools. And I think that's just a philosophy that we've been able to really bring to the company and, and one that we, we hold very high in terms of the, you know, the people that we bring in and, and how we are really mission driven t- uh, t- towards that.
0: Can I ask what, when you had that moment in the lab and, and you started going around and you were mapping out the HPV virus? I feel like academics would ordinarily say, "Okay, let's stay in the lab and let's get grants and let's figure." Well, why did you think about taking this to the commercial field?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as soon as we saw that this was reproducible, that it actually had the level of accuracy that matched the gold standard PCR for for detecting these viruses, it, it became this sort of obsession. Like, you know, we're really onto something new, and I think it also made us recognize that there was more impact you could have by taking it outside of the academic lab. You know throughout our training, it's sort of like, okay, you get to a proof of concept, you can publish impactful papers, but sort of taking it to the next level of translation was something that I personally had never experienced. And I think one that I was really just eager to to dive into. And I think through, you know, just exploring this idea of, okay, maybe we should start a company based on this this thesis that you could go from discovery of a new enzyme to understanding how it works to actually driving a new application. Like, can we explore this a little bit more? And I think it was just sort of a combination of being at the right time, being comfortable with taking new risks, frankly being in a position where, you know, you're a graduate student making 30000 dollars a year. There's really nothing to lose. So we're like, okay, you know, we're all we're all committed. So let's just go
2: and do it. How does your mindset change as you go from being an academic to an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, it's so different, right? As a graduate student, you're sort of like a mile deep and an inch wide, right? You become a deep expert in a particular area, and certainly for me, right, really understanding kind of the atomic detail of of these CRISPR enzymes. And then, as you transition to an entrepreneur, it's the opposite. You become an inch deep in a way and a mile wide. I mean, I try to go further than an inch, but at some level, you know, you are sort of you're zooming out a lot more. I think that you might as a graduate student but i for me personally that's been one of the most exciting parts about entrepreneurship and being able to lead a company was to be able to zoom in and zoom out you know go into the minutia but also then go really abstract and being able to flex kind of both sides of my thinking on that has been extremely exciting
0: i want to talk about the the company and the culture of the company one is that you've got scientists who are coming in and they're coming presumably out of the same kind of environment you came out of my impression of scientists let's challenge that if it's wrong is that your work is siloed. You've got to be very, very focused on what you do. And now you've got to come in and work to a company and work with other people and be able to present to investors. And how do you help people make that transition? How did you make that transition?
1: For sure. Yeah, I think for us in particular, so there's four co-founders, including Jennifer, Trevor Martin, who's our CEO. He actually came from Stanford, so we're a rare Berkeley-Stanford collaboration <laughs> that so far seems to be working out. And then, of course, my uh, lab mate Lucas as well. So I think we sort of all came in with a level of just shared life experience, uh, shared uh, vision, shared vision values. And really, I think we all have a similar, let's say, level of risk appetite, which is really great because we're not afraid to try new things. But certainly coming in as first-time founders, first-time entrepreneurs, I think has been really great doing it as a team. And that's one thing actually going back to the culture of Jennifer's Lab is cultivating this idea and, and this culture of collaboration, frankly, where I think in a lot of other PhD experiences, yeah, you might be completely siloed and really kind of heads down and working on a problem. But I think Jennifer's lab in particular, really, I do think challenged that idea that your science was really just like in your own world. I think that was the other learning experience that I had being in her lab was being able to essentially cold email anyone. Like I talked about reaching out to physicians at UCSF. I had done that with other projects that I'd working on where I was like, oh, I want to be able to, you know, leverage this single molecule technology. Let me just cold email an expert in the field and say, hey, can we collaborate? And of course, being in Jennifer's lab, you could just be like, hey, I'm from the down lab. Let's work together. And everyone would be like, let's do it. Right. So I had sort of that the opportunity that I think a lot of people might not have, um, but I, I've really been able to, to leverage that. And then I, I've noticed that you can just do so much more by collaborating with others, especially people from diverse backgrounds and disciplines in terms of being able to kind of unlock and uncover things that you might not be able to, if you only looked at it from, from one direction.
0: So that's cool. You had that calling card and you realized, gee, if we all work together, it's terrific. You saw the benefits of it. How do you practice that model that like, how how do you and your co-founders like show the team? This is the way to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is leading by example. You know, Lucas and I have developed a really great working relationship. We've almost been working together for like 10 years now. And so we have a level of trust with each other where we can say, hey, I know you're really good at a certain thing, uh, but I'm also gonna challenge you. And I'm going to sort of make sure that, you know, we're actually driving after the most important problems with Trevor as well. He's also, um, you know, has a really long-term vision of terms of like, how do we wanna build this company? We don't wanna take things from a traditional approach you know, even to the fact that we are young first-time founders has sort of changed the perception of the company, right? People don't see us as gray-haired management that's come in to drive for this tech company but really okay we are a group of founders that really are, are willing to rethink how we might be able to tackle some of the biggest challenges in healthcare today a lot of it is just leading by example it's also really encouraging our teams to think outside of the box you know creativity for example is one of our core company values and I think that's one thing that's really stood out as we interview candidates for roles and, and what people are attracted to as well in terms of oh wow mammoth is just kind of doing things a little bit differently and I think over the years we've been able to really validate that one thing we've noticed too is that I think that we are certainly leading the way in terms of how we think about building, you know, this new CRISPR platform. And and a feature of that is that we have um, many people trying to, frankly, copy our narrative or, or say that they're doing the same things that we are. And so it's definitely there's a lot of noise there. But I, I'm really proud of our ability to kind of create a momentum around the work that we're doing at Mammoth.
2: Were there any initial challenges you thought you had to overcome? You know, being young entrepreneurs specifically.
1: Yeah, I mean there are just. So many challenges that that we had to overcome. I think for me in particular, you know, I've always had to manage like my own imposter syndrome throughout even graduate school. And I think over the years, I've been able to be in control of that rather than having the imposter syndrome be in control of me. You know, I've been able to to manage through just active coaching and practice. But in general, I think um, part of it is mindset and realizing that we're all coming in and trying to do something new, which means that even though we have maybe different years of experience or different perspectives, like at the end of the day, we're all coming to this at the starting line, right? And how do we build that together? Um, And I think that's been really important because then we can kind of see everyone as equal colleagues who have a lot to contribute to bring forward the the vision that we'd like to accomplish. But in general, I think, again, having a a co-founding team that sort of has not done this before is actually, I think, a feature and not a bug in this case, because it allows us to sort of you know not just go down what people might traditionally want uh, and and believe is w- what the path towards success might be yeah
2: how do you think about that I know at mammoth you have some great experienced folks around the table who I imagine you rely on for their advice how do you kind of balance you know not leaning too heavily on them and being able to chart your own course but still taking in some of their experience
1: yeah that's a great question it's actually probably one of the more difficult things that I've had to to learn myself, right? Because on the one hand, yes, we have an incredible team and one that I just, I feel honored every day to be able to work with them. On the other hand, it's sort of like, yeah, you, you don't want to just fall into a comfort zone where you say, okay, you know you know this, and so let's just go to the simplest or, or the most most comfortable thing to go forward with, right? But really uh, making sure that we hold each other accountable and really challenge each other to say, okay, actually, is this the right way to, to go about it? Again, going back to this idea of challenging dogma and not just going the, the path of least resistance. But it is a really delicate balance. In a lot of ways, it's more of an art than a science. It's about really understanding you know, why people are trying to go after things a certain way, understanding why... You know yourself feel strongly about a particular point of view, but making sure that's all being expressed, and then having a clear process for saying, okay, well, there's a path forward that maybe we don't know. We have no idea if it's actually going to work, but we are going to be committed to it and and move forward. But um, certainly, I would say, you know, we've had so many incredible advisors, both inside outside of the company, that have helped us create and craft and refine the the path forward. And I think our job as founders is to try to listen to all of that, uh, synthesize it, but then at the end of the day, make sure that it's really, you know, the decisions that we make are aligned with our core mission and, and values and, and that we are able to then direct things in the way that are, is going to lead to uh, realizing the, the potential of the company.
0: Just staying on that theme of the team advisors and professionals there that may not be PhDs, Right and who are not doing the core work, but you need them to understand what it is that you're doing and to have some level of familiarity and subject matter expertise so they can filter their advice through the values of the company and what you're trying to accomplish. How do you do that? How do you overcome what may be translation issues?
1: Yeah, it's a a great question. The flip side is true, right? Where I might be a deep expert in some area of the technology, but then I'll have essentially no understanding of a different function or Mm -hmm. very surface level understanding. So there is this translational piece where I've learned that it's you can absolutely overcome that. And a lot of it comes down to really breaking things down to first principles and saying, okay, you know, what is the goal that we're trying to accomplish? How do we communicate that in a way that can be translatable, right? And so instead of kind of going into, yeah, the minutia of, okay, what's most important? I think a lot of it at the end of the day comes down to having people who at least are not completely uh, isolated from the different functions. Like, as an example, our head of IP, for instance, has a scientific background and, and also is just incredibly strategic on the uh, IP side, right? And so I think having that mixture of different disciplines actually becomes a powerhouse. And those are the kind of people that we like to hire at Mammoth so that it's sort of a, a synergy. It's it's more than the sum of its parts because you have people that that can have this ability to translate. It's not always true and it's not always necessary, but I think that's one thing really kind of brings the team to the next level
0: you know in, in thinking about this conversation i was thinking about the possible parallels between our business and and mammoth and and one of them is that and you said it actually you're always focused on what's new what's next it's sort of like this relentless focus the product is innovation you have to continually evolve it's not some other companies i maybe it's a conceit but some other companies like you know you have to innovate but you also do a thing the thing you're doing is innovating and you grew four times since 2019 or whatever right that's exhausting. How do you not have everybody just running at full rpms all the time
1: yeah it's uh, <laughs> it's something that we have to to always watch out for, right? but like you said, their innovation is just so core, I think to the longevity of a company, right I think depending on you know what your goals are, but for us it's really about building it's building a company, it's building a platform, it's really taking new technologies to patients, and with those big goals in mind, we have to innovate, otherwise we're going to become obsolete. Either we have to um, out-innovate ourselves or some other company will. And, and I think that's one thing that keeps us really focused on uh, making sure that, yeah, we're not driving into obsolescence and that we are continuing to, to push the boundaries. Um, as far as making sure that, like, you can continue to move forward without sort of petering out. I mean, that's, I think, a a, <laughs> a conversation that we're all navigating together, right? Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly motivating to, to go after. I think that's where having... um really difficult problems is, at least for me, a way to to manage that because you know that the effort that you put in is going to take you one step closer to being able to to detect and cure all genetic diseases, right? Fundamentally, being able to eradicate disease is something that is extremely far out there, but one that I think everyone is like, I can get behind that. And I know that everything that we do is going to help us get closer to that reality.
0: It's very motivating. I, I can imagine. Ahead, Sorry, Jeff. Oh, no worries. I was just going to ask. You know,
2: the growth has been tremendous, and there's three of you as founders. How do you manage like dividing and conquering, but then understanding when you need to come together again for certain issues? How does that dynamic work?
1: There are a couple rituals that us as founders have maintained throughout uh, the growth of the company since we were, you know just a tiny team to where we are today. And that is making sure that we have dedicated time with each other every single week to just talk about you know, where things are, what's going on, uh, what, what do we need? Uh, what help do we need? So that's been sort of a consistent like drumbeat that's sort of persisted throughout the years. From a roles and responsibilities standpoint, that's always evolving, right? I think that's one thing I'm sure your listeners are aware of or, or may not be aware of is that as founders, you have to acknowledge that your role is going to change over time. And that's a good thing because that means the company is scaling. You're bringing in people with new expertise that can help drive things in ways that you can never do yourself. And in a lot of ways, it becomes a relief sometimes to the founder, because all of a sudden, okay, you're no longer burdened by something that maybe you just don't know that well, but you have to pull together to move things forward. I think a lot of the um, being able to work together also is understanding like very clear swim lanes. Okay, you're accountable and responsible for certain things. And and then, you know, your, your counterparts are accountable and responsible for other things. And then making sure that we also are being able to pull our weight at the same kind of intensity as everyone else. So, a lot of it is, of course, built on just trust and communication um, and also recognizing each other's strengths and weaknesses and being able to really kind of create a, a cohesive group based on you know, where we are, are as, as people and, and teammates. Um, And I think that's sort of uh, how we've been able to pull through.
0: Do you review each other? At the end uh, of the we year? definitely do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or every ten minutes, <laughs>
1: <laughs> we always, yeah. I think one one thing that I'm really grateful with the team is that we are very frank. I, I don't, you know, we're our personalities are such that we're very much direct with each other. We also have our own executive coaches who help us, even w- whether it's with each other or others on our team, is is helping us give and receive feedback. I think that's something that um, if you can't figure that out, it becomes incredibly difficult to sort of course correct or or just try to make, uh, ourselves better.
0: Can I ask you a question that's not particular to mammoth or the field, but as a business leader and as a business leader, who's out there talking to people about a variety of things, do you get pressure or encouragement internally or externally to talk about the issues of the day? I feel like that's more of a, of an issue for business leaders. We certainly see it. And if so, how do you, what's your framework for deciding what you're going to speak on and what you're going to not speak on?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. I think definitely both internally and externally, there is sort of an expectation that as a leader, you are able to have clear position statements or at least a point of view around what's going on. And I think the way that we've been sort of managing that, I mean, you know, over the last couple of years and well before we even started Mammoth, there's always been new, uh, unexpected you know, world events that have happened. And I think one thing that we've done is is just to create like a platform for being able to have that kind of open dialogue internally. A lot of times, I think what I've learned is that, you know, there may be certain um, events that may not impact me directly, but has tremendous impact on someone else in the company. And so being able to have a safe space to talk about things and listen, I think this has uh, been extremely important for us to kind of build that that trust and community uh, and recognizing that we all have just very multidimensional lives and, and, and things that impact us day to day. So that's more on the internal side. On the external side, um, I think in a lot of ways, there's there's not as much pressure, I would say, but it's more about, okay, well, how do you want to be be known as a company, right? And I think, you know, as leaders, we all are representatives of the company. And so making sure that we are aligned as a team in terms of like, you know, what are the things that we really feel like are most important? You know, what are the things that, that may be distractions? I mean, those are not so straightforward. And a lot of times, You know, it's not a single person necessarily that's saying, okay, this is what the company will stand for. But I think it's a combination of sort of uh, understanding your culture and what your company uh, ultimately uh, values. I think that that all kind of ties together.
0: I like how you're thinking about it. Like you have to identify who you are, what you want to be, and just be clear about it. Mammoth in five years, the field in five years. What do you think? What should we expect?
1: Yeah, oh my gosh, five years is like an eternity in CRISPR, right? I mean, if you just think about it, it's been 10 weeks. well 10 years right has sort of it's been like a decade since the original 2012 papers uh that you know Jennifer and Manuel and colleagues uh, received the Nobel Prize for just a couple years ago so it's kind of incredible to think that yeah just in a decade what the field has been able to accomplish from understanding that you could reprogram these enzymes to edit DNA to now you know reaching reaching the clinic and showing a ton of promise in terms of being able to edit genetic disease um but then of course the next 5 years I think it's really going to be about well creating real cures, I think, for for these diseases. It's also being able to expand what's possible with CRISPR. I think, again, CRISPR started from, okay, basically being synonymous with this Cas9 protein to now recognizing that this is an incredible rich, diverse toolbox of enzymes that have all these capabilities uh, and so much power as as new possibilities for genetic medicine. And when I say medicine, I'm really talking about the continuum of of healthcare, right? From all the way from the detection through the treatment. I think recognizing there's a full ecosystem and and continuum of care, uh, I think is where CRISPR is going to play an incredible role throughout that whole process. Um, So yeah, in five years, yeah, we're gonna absolutely gonna see CRISPR diagnostics products in the market we're going to see really exciting readouts in terms of the progress that we're making on in vivo gene editing with new CRISPR enzymes and I think these are all again just critical milestones for validating you know what the technology can do but the ultimate vision is that okay you can you can show that you're able to deliver on these kind of focused areas but then it becomes a platform and a, a vehicle for us to then be able to apply that to so many diseases and, you know, being able to capture this entire space of what essentially has no really reliable, accessible diagnostic that is going to lead to a, a permanent cure. So I think being able to capture that full spectrum is something that we're going to start to to see in, in the next five years.
0: At the risk of embarrassing Jeff, sorry, Jeff, I, I, because I'm going to ask a question that may be an incredibly stupid question. I, I heard you talking about with, on another, someone else's, I think, podcast. You're out there at in national parks in thermal vents in the ocean looking for enzymes. What does that mean? What are you doing?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think <laughs> that's one uh, really exciting part about the the diversity of CRISPR, right? So if we kind of zoom all the way back to help us understand why it's important to go to nature for this stuff is remembering that CRISPR actually comes from this natural bacterial immune system. So in the same way that humans have an adaptive immune system to fight against viruses, Um, it turns out that these bacteria also have a process to fight against invading viruses. And so we all know that the microbiome uh, is incredibly diverse uh, around the globe in different environments. I mean, you know, if you go and and just take a soil sample, for instance, you're going to uncover so much diversity just within that sample. And then now imagine going to a a lake or or a forest or a thermal vent, right? A lot of key molecular biology tools were discovered, frankly, from these extreme environments environments. And that's kind of an example of sort of, again, just uncovering the natural diversity that exists for these these tools. And and CRISPR is no exception, right? And so there's quite literally folks that that go into these environments and collect these samples, sequence them, create these really rich data sets that we can then mine computationally for these next generation CRISPR enzymes. And then a lot of the magic actually then comes from having the know-how and expertise to translate those sequences into functional enzymes that will work in the lab and then will work into specific application. So that's like the secret sauce that, that Mammoth has uh, really cultivated and been able to leverage in tremendous ways.
0: It's like these 19th century naturalists who are out there like, collecting the, the samples of whatever you know, mollusk that had never been discovered. It's like the 21st <laughs> century version. It's so cool. Exactly. Sorry, Jeff, I interrupted you.
2: No, actually, it's a good segue. Janice, you, know, you talked earlier about the breadth of CRISPR and that it can be applied across the healthcare spectrum. When I look at Mammoth, the one thing that I think really sets it apart is you're kind of like these three businesses, actually. You know, you've got this platform that you just talked about, then you're doing diagnostics, you're also doing therapeutics. You know, how do you manage all of that at once? And how do you think about where you want to dial in and dial out your time and energy?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a question that we've had to ask and answer over and over and over again over the years, right? I think even in the early days, we were primarily really focusing on CRISPR diagnostics, but recognizing that we had uh, this powerful engine that was driving forward. And again, the, the core competency of the company around this CRISPR platform and recognizing that there was this incredible opportunity that we could go after and then pursuing the therapeutics application. So in a lot of ways, yes, we are a very multidimensional company. And I think that's been both a a challenge, uh, but also a a huge opportunity. I think even in the early days, you know, I think a lot of (laughs) investors were having a hard time trying to understand and wrap their minds like, are are you a diagnostic company? Are you a therapeutics company? Are you, (laughs) you know, and I think we've had to been able to really refine that narrative and really say, look, no, this is broader than just any one business. It's showing that you can have one technology that is able to address all of the unmet needs across the healthcare spectrum. I think there's no other example that currently exists that we know of, at least. Um, And I I think that's sort of been um, the overarching reason of why we all, we are, Cultivating all of this within, within mammoth. But then as far as the execution, I mean, that's a different story, right? There's, there's a an narrative and then there's the extra execution piece. And I think a lot of that comes down to how you're structuring, you know, the different areas within the company. How are you making decisions around, you know, what are the highest priorities? And, but of course, staying true to what you want to actually achieve. One way that we do that is to have really dedicated leaders and experts to help drive forward, you know, these different businesses that have gone through that product life cycle. And so they know, you know, they've been through the trenches and they know how to take that all the way through but then also making sure that, you know, we never lose our core, right, which is, again, this discovery uh, engine that 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 truly is going to unlock maybe new applications that we can't even think of today. And I think being able to uh, have that optionality is also really exciting. And I think that's one thing that really draws people to Mammoth as well, because they realize, wow, there really is sort of this fountain of (laughs) opportunity. And it's a question of how do we then, you know, Really, kind of prioritize within that. I think that's that's a process that uh, we have a, a working framework that we constantly do need to revise because there's there's new opportunities that come up, and and then there are things that we say, look, you know, we're going to stay super focused on on making sure that we execute towards the the goals here. But at the end of the day, it's it's yeah, it's it's constant discussion and strategy and, and negotiation and figuring out how do we look at this in totality, right? And so as far as like my role, I sort of. I sort of wore multiple hats, but again, like the role has been evolving over time. But, you know, as chief technology officer at Mammoth, I I have oversight over sort of all the different uh, technologies that we're developing and how we actually translate that into products. But also, you know, I do have a a role as sort of the the head of diagnostics and really thinking about how do we actually translate this new technology into transformative diagnostic products that are really going to to change the landscape for diagnostic testing in the in the near term and the long term. So, it's a lot of like context switching at times, but I think overall, you know, my 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 primary role is a founder, right? And so I'm always thinking about how do we actually uh, make sure that we deliver on what we intended to do when we started Mammoth.
0: Well, really casting the sharp relief what you were talking about before, your communication among you and your co-founders, like you, that that has to be super important to make sure that you're able to to execute on all that. Exactly. Um, I have a last question for you, and I'm going to disclose my bias. I'm hoping that you validate my sense that the liberal arts are a really great way to to get into all kinds of things. And my question is, you went to Johns Hopkins undergrad. You obviously did a lot of work. I'm, I've heard you talk about building the yeast genome in college, which sounds amazing. But what's the, the class outside of your discipline that you – is there a class, I guess I should ask it in a less leading way, <laughs> um, that you think about? Now you're like, gee whiz, I'm glad I took that. Or I think about that all the time. Or is there something like that in your, in your academic past?
1: Um, I think that there's so much that you learn outside of class, actually, that, (laughs) that I think your academic training kind of helps you think about, you know, specific problems. But I feel like a lot of the learning, at least for me personally, became outside of the classroom. That's through actually getting your hands dirty in the lab. It's, you know, talking with other really passionate people about what they're working on. So I I personally feel like I I loved my time at Hopkins. I think I had extraordinary opportunity to get into cutting edge science. But at the end of the day, having the opportunity to actually drive research in in a laboratory, I think probably was the most uh, transformative thing. And then, you know, the second, I would say career defining moment for me was you know, being able to join Jennifer's lab and having that experience of being in the forefront of the field. But, you know, as you you point out, I think it's, again, uh, it's more than just science, right? I I personally have like an artistic side of me, which is I I was, you know, really involved in dance and music. And I think, you know, I really like to connect the non-obvious and I have this kind of deep appreciation for yeah not just like kind of one focus area but how does how does this all kind of come together because at the end of the day especially when you're building a company it's it's you're working with people with all kinds of backgrounds and you just have to have an appreciation for all of it
0: what a great answer i'm going to leave it there because that's fabulous thank you for thank you for that and thank you for spending time on jeff's behalf on six streets behalf on behalf of our listeners thank you it's great it's what a great conversation and i really enjoyed uh, spending time with you yeah
1: awesome thanks david and thanks jeff
0: Janice Chan of Mammoth Biosciences joined us for an interview on May 25th, 2022. They're doing incredible things that will change how we live and have unbelievable opportunities and risks. But what struck me most from our conversation is how a deep expert like Janice very deliberately approaches leadership and managing a high-growth business. In particular, one, this reinforced for me how multiple disciplines coming together can be incredibly powerful, but you have to help people with different expertise get on the same page. I was struck by Janice's answer to the question on how she translates the technical to the non-technical staff. She turned it around. She insisted it's her responsibility to make sure she understood what experts outside her area are trying to accomplish, which I thought was a great example of ownership mentality and what being a leader means jeff did you have any thoughts yeah you know the idea that mammoth's
2: product being innovation itself and how Janeth said you know they have to keep out innovating themselves or someone else is going to do it and how having the overall mission of changing the world you know it's a very useful prod for continuing to push
0: Yeah, I agree. And the last thing I'd say is that you have to be able to see the field and you have to set up your machine or your process or whatever you call it to make it more likely that you are picking your head up. It'd be very easy for someone like Janice to only focus on lab work, but she spoke very thoughtfully about how the leadership team tries to make sure that dots are connected and being intentional about giving the company, but also herself personally, space to see the bigger picture and how they do that with constant communication and straight talk. If you want to learn more about CRISPR, go to our website. We'll have educational resources up there to check out. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this.
2: Yeah, thanks, David. This was fun.
0: Yeah, it was. And thanks to our colleague, Kristen Senderson on Sixth Street's healthcare investing team who helped us prepare for the conversation. And again, a big thank you from all of us at Sixth Street to Janice Chen for her time and her insights. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a 6th Street podcast. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at 6 com, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's show, please share it. And follow at 6th Street News for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to 6th Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Kate Hanick, for putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Colonna. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original song from Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiepelman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of or listening to this podcast is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sixth Street. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details.